0: Hello, I'm Matthew Bradbury and welcome to The Beverage Report, a student-led podcast ran out of the London School of Economics, Department of Economics. Today we sit down to discuss with Professor Sir Chris Pissarides. In two thousand and ten, he was one of three people awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics, and we discuss with him his life at the LC before that event, after, and his work now with the Greek government defining Greek economic policy going forwards. Without further ado, um, first question: How have you been adjusting to life under lockdown? What have you been keeping yourself busy with recently?
1: Well, actually, in the lockdown, I've been even uh, busier than before because. Uh, there are a lot more requests that come through to do on um, Zoom or Skype or whatever software than before, which involved travel. But um, but life has changed the way I spend it because I used to travel a lot more, and of course I haven't traveled at all since um, last March. And um, and because travel usually involves uh, preparing work for uh, big uh, talks. Uh, uh, talking to um, uh, politicians or to central bankers, uh, mainly in uh, other countries, when you go, people want to see you. With that, it has been uh, cut down completely. So I switched back to academic work and I've written uh, two papers, in fact, since the lockdown, which uh, I, I've presented in academic seminars. You know, it's a little bit rusty, uh, I guess, but... Um, I let the profession decide if they're worth publishing <laughs> or whether, but uh, i am I, I'm en- I'm enjoying switching back to academic work, sitting at a desk and just thinking deeper than uh, uh, being on flights all the time and uh, talking to politicians in a way that you would want to address yourself so that it's become more understandable.
0: And to put all of that in context, just, you know, you say you used to do a lot of travel, but you moved to London in 1976 and you, you haven't moved since... Why
1: London? Why for so long? Well,
0: what
1: what brought me to London in um, after the PhD, immediately after, was the political situation in Cyprus because it was soon after the Turkish invasion. I mean, you said since nineteen seventy six, that's the official date that the British immigration authorities have, but in fact, I came here in um, in August nineteen seventy four, and um, I had. Finished my PhD at the LSE a few months earlier. Uh, I happened to be out of uh, Cyprus when uh, the uh, Turkish invasion took place when airports closed and you couldn't leave again. So it was a decision whether I try and get a job and pursue my interests outside Cyprus or going back to get a job that uh, I had at the central bank. I had been offered at the central bank. I hadn't started very seriously, really. And I don't think there was any choice when it's little Cyprus of, uh, at that time, half a million people in big turkey or uh, whatever it was at, at the time, you know, the 40, 50 million <clears throat> involved military conflict. But the intention wasn't to stay so long. It, it was just one thing brought another. And uh, I stayed here.
0: You've- You've stated that your early difficult experiences at the LSE left a big mark on you. And you've also talked about when you were head of uh, the econ department um, for three years leading to 1999, you tried to, you seized this chance to kind of change things from the better. So again, I suppose my question is, what was the department like before you were head? What was it like when you first joined? Um, What were the kind of changes or initiatives that you really valued? And then how have you seen it grow since then?
1: Well... It's um, it's quite interesting, in fact, seeing what's been happening both at the LSE and and the profession more generally in, in economics. But I, I was a student, of course, at the LSE before. I not my undergraduate. I did my PhD at the LSE, and um, at that time, students were left entirely on their own. You know, the supervisor was there to see at regular intervals just to make sure that you are still alive and you are still there and you haven't. Disappeared without the administration knowing anything. But you were basically working on your own. In fact, I could see now looking back why the beaver is the symbol of the LSE, we're beavering away in a, in a very, very old-fashioned dark library. You know, you you'd be amazed how many books and articles I read on my own just because I put them, I picked them up from the shelves of the library. And um and then when I started as um, lecturers were called then assistant professor. Now, again, you were left entirely on your own. You know, if you met someone, you met them. If you didn't, you didn't. There were many people in the department that you didn't know or scattered all over the LSE buildings. There was nothing to make us a coherent group. And we could see students being lost in the department, junior faculty being lost. There was nothing going on. And... Um, I mean, personally, what changed my life—the at the LSE and brought me into a group—was um, mainly Richard Layard's uh, Centre for Labour Economics in the in, in the eighties. Um, but then, it, it, so becoming head of department at the LSE, at least at that time, was rotating without any questions asked. Each one of us had to do it for three years seniority, and 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 once I. Uh, got the job in the three years. I I also talked to others as well, you know, the other professors, I uh, talked to the administration. I was very lucky because Tony Giddens was starting as director of the LSE and, and he was one of the few who came directly from academia and you could appreciate problems of academics. And I thought, you know, what what does this department need? If I'm going to be head of department for three years, then I better do something. And, and I realized that we're, um, following completely wrong policies with the recruitment. Uh, The building structure was such that we couldn't act as one uh, unit, one department. And um, we didn't have the um, administrative structure to support students, uh, faculty, uh, all the activities that the department should be doing. And I embarked on those three big uh, projects where you don't, you, you, you don't make many friends when you're doing that actually. this this of friends coming in the future if it functions well, but whilst it's happening, you know, that adjustment cost um, creates many enemies,
0: I can tell you. Which of those changes are you proudest of? Like when you look at the, the department now, is there anything where, what are the marks today that you see direct ties to decisions you made? Or what are the decisions that you think kind of were most impactful? Well, well,
1: well, actually, I mean, I don't want it to sound like showing off or or, or anything, but um, but but I'm very happy to see that all the uh, things that I pursued at the time they're still being done, and because you know now we're talking about 20 years ago almost, not almost exactly 20 years ago. In fact, it, it, they've become so much part of the culture. of see that that you think it's always been like that. But for example, um. One of the things that I um, persuaded uh, Giddens and the school administration to do was to agree that uh, not every department should follow the same uh, recruitment policies for uh, faculty. We couldn't get anyone very good. In fact, we were losing the best people uh, to to the United States mainly. I mean, I tried it myself as well, but I I said, no, this this place is not for me. And do i feel great relief <laughs> for the last four years for not choosing that place um and um, and, and and they agreed although Giddens was a, was a political sociology you know sociology politics and economics and and, and now we have such a tremendous uh, faculty and it's partly because you know we could offer better salaries better incentives better structure more flexible i mean that it, it makes me feel very proud in a way that I can see the department being able to compete with the top American schools because of changes that started at that time. Obviously, lots of things happened since then, but at least it was the initial boost. And, and, and then, you know, we're still all concentrated uh, together. Although I have to say, uh, although our new building, we're new in the last, I don't know how many years we've been now at um, 12 Lincoln City Fields, it, it's not as friendly as our old building. Which was more squeezed, and the and, and places we all went were the same ones, where now we're splitting to floors, and there's hardly any communication between different floors. But at least we're together as a department in our building. And, um, and of course, we have a better administrative structure now, more people dedicated to student support or dedicated to the support of new faculty coming in, uh, to promotions. It, it's a structured it's a much more structured administration and the restructuring from the old fashioned one started again uh, when I was head of department and negotiating with that with the um, LSE administration.
0: So you mentioned Richard Laird's Center for Labor Economics there. And you've said that when it was created in the early 1980s, it quotes, alas, maybe the LLC feel like an outward looking progressive place concerned with important questions. So my question here is, what? How have the questions that the LSE has asked changed over the years? Because if if unemployment was the zeitgeist in the eighties, what was what what then came after that? What do you see as the zeitgeist today?
1: Well, actually, when when I said that it changed, it was mainly the way it interacted with the outside world. You know, I mean, there were great economists uh, before. You know, you had Hayek, for example. Before then, you had Robbins or whether you know, there were people who left. Mark on the profession, but but they're working on their own their own problems, hardly in interaction with other universities. When I was there, especially when I first went there, you you, you didn't really meet anyone outside the LSE. You hardly met anyone inside the LSE. In fact, there was just one annual meeting of the Royal Economic Society where you met some people from other departments. But even there, the main interest was going get drunk and have fun in the evenings, you know, <laughs> and um, and especially there wasn't much interaction with uh, American economists who were driving the profession forward at, at the time. And when Richard set up the Center for Labor Economics, his objective was to bring in people from the States, from Europe. You know, the first time that we started uh, collaborating with other European economists, you know, French, German, Italian, and so on. And... Um, and, and especially sort of traveling Americans who would also spend time at the LSE. So suddenly it became that hub of, of, of activity and interaction and um, uh, addressing sort of important problems. I have to say that, that I mean, Richard has been a tremendous influence on me, but he was always um, telling me, you know, economics might be fun, but don't just take the literature and uh, try to write a better mathematical model of what someone said and all that, think of the big problems, you know, don't be shy, just think, go for it. And at the time I was working and I had an, an interest in labor economics in uh, sort support for poverty, anti-poverty and all that, unemployment was the big problem. And I thought that's it, you know, I would go into unemployment. I have to say that he, he motivated me to working like that, but the approaches we followed were completely different from each other. <laughs> but he, he always showed an appreciation, actually, of what I was doing, I have to say. <laughs> but um, but at least in the beginning, the approach that uh, he and uh, Steve Nichol, Richard Jackman followed based on unions and monopolies and interactions was carrying more weight, at least in Europe, than you and I followed, which was more... <laughs> kind of decentralized based on frictions in labor markets and all that. But um, that, that's that's what I meant. And, and since then, that's been maintained at the LSE. We never went back to the uh, bad old days of the 1970s.
0: And then 10 years ago, you were the joint winner of the Nobel Prize in Economics. How did you find out the news?
1: Well, the news, you just get a phone call at um, I think 11 o'clock uh, Swedish time. Which was uh, no twelve o'clock Swedish time. It was eleven o'clock. You take UK time, and um, and I have to say, I never thought that uh, I would get such a phone call, or even thought about it. I mean, it's it's sunny columns. You know that it's going to be the second Monday of October usually. So uh, that Monday, uh, I don't know. You're always speculating before and all that, I could see my name appearing in Ladbroke's bets, (laughs) betting and all that, but in in fact, I thought that um, there was very easy money to be made there because um, I I was sure, mainly because Dale Dale Mortensen, my collaborator in everything in the the previous uh, 20 years, he he was telling me that we had a good chance of what he was uh, Hearing in the, the states, and and he said he was saying, you know, it would probably be three Peter damon you, myself, they was telling me, but in Lovebrook's betting, it, Peter Tamon had different odds from Morton Sopireri, <laughs> so he, you could you could have done a nice a nice trade there actually, but I thought never, I, I never bet, um, but uh, I, you completely ignore it, and especially that day, in fact, I like, I had a cold and. Um, I don't usually stay home from colds, but I thought you know, I'd stay home and work. I didn't have any teaching on that Monday. I was working home. I thought I'm not going to answer any phone because I'm not going to do anything. And then my phone kept ringing. ringing. And then I looked at the um, phone coming in and there was, I think it was forty. is it 43 for Sweden? I, I thought it's coming from abroad. I wonder what it is. I, I still didn't think that it might be Sweden. I <laughs> pick it up and it says, are you Christopher crystal episodes? And I said, yes. Said, are you in a private space? I thought, you know, this must be a hoax of some kind. You know, and I said, yes. And he said, this is a very important phone call from the Royal Society of uh, Sweden or something. Can you take it? And, and, and then it suddenly dawned on me that it was Monday, 10th of October, whatever. And um, you, you sit there and listen quietly. And, and you say, I better not say anything because whatever I say can only... Move in one direction.
0: (laughs) And then what did you do the rest of your day? How how did you spend the prize money? Well, they said to
1: me um, not to say anything. So um, I sent a few smiles around without saying (laughs) anything, which completely puzzled people. And then um, it was 12 London time that uh, it was announced. And 12 and 30 seconds, I think, the first uh, congratulations email arrived from uh, one of my former PhD students. And then for about an hour or two, you know, that little window that opens when a new email arrives, I don't think that little window went off at all. <laughs> so you just don't know what to say. But, but then it's the biggest change that you, um, that, you, that you find with the Nobel Prize. I don't know why it does it. I asked others and it's, it's exactly the same. But suddenly everyone wants to know what you think about all kinds of things. So there were endless phone calls from all the newspapers, TV channels, friends, anyone you met in the past, you know, where suddenly you become knowledgeable, knowledgeable about everything in economics. And that's how um, life as business then, you know, it's rather difficult to manage it. But um, well, when it comes to the money, of course, it wasn't that much because it was divided by three. We were not like the literature lawyers get all the money, and then they sell all their books as well <laughs> on the same day. And, um, when the, uh, it was Vargas, you know, the uh, one the literature when we were there, I can't remember his first name, but I've got his, his books here. And then he, um, um, I went, I walked through, when I walked through Stockholm, when we went there together, there, I saw this very long queue in the, one of the main streets, and I said, oh, what's this? And he said, oh, the literature laureates is here signing books. Hundreds of people there, you know. Economies are not like that. <laughs> but, um, but when it comes to how you spend it, I, I had one great uh, Irish professor at BLC, Terence Goldman, the microeconomist. And he was um, working on very um, sort of mathematical, sophisticated models of consumption spending, you know, the permanent income hypothesis and all that. and And in one uh, graduate class we had, you know, I mean, he had the most wonderful Irish accent, which I'm not going to (laughs) pretend that I could even get close to, but but he had had his glasses were always like that. And when he was talking, they were moving up and down like that. And and he was telling things in the funniest way possible. And then he was trying to explain to us about the permanent income hypothesis and the mathematical foundations of it and how detailed calculations people do. And he said, telling about a moment, he said, uh, actually, I don't think that's how people spend their money. He said, you know, there's that wonderful story of that Irish guy who won, uh, won the lottery, you know, loads and loads of money. And then they asked him, how did you spend that money? And he said, well, I took my mom out for a meal. I bought her a, a TV and the rest just fizzled out. I just don't know. He said,
0: you know, <laughs> so that's the story of my and not- money as well. It just fizzled out, you know. And then after one wins the most prestigious award in their fields, like what do you do next? I mean, you mentioned that you have to kind of pass through people wanting to hear your opinion on things. But, you know, when it is the case that there's a pandemic and you have the time to write two papers, like what what do you decide to do with your time after you have the most prestigious award? Well, actually, you you you, you don't have that much
1: choice uh, the way I look at it in terms of, um, of, of where your comparative advantage Lies. you know you could obviously say you oh, i'm going to ignore this and carry on with what i was doing which i don't know if anyone does it in economics but yeah, i can tell you the vast majority of uh, Nobel in economics don't do that because you keep getting invitations that look uh, too good to say you no know, if you're especially if you are interested in in, um, in policy you know, in applications of what you do which is the other influence that came from uh, layer center because the whole point of that was how to advise policy to act in a good way with big problems like unemployment and all that. So you realize that people are much, pay much more attention to what you're saying. They listen much more. So you move on to the applied field and you write applied things or you give lectures where you explain what the problems and what solutions would be. And as long as you do that well and you just don't throw unsubstantiated uh, comments or recommendations and all that, it's, I mean, it is enjoyable. I was, I was always interested in that aspect of it. Now you might think, oh, this is a good time to sit back and reflect and write books and all that, but writing book takes a long time and there are so many things that come along for you to do that uh, uh, its it's unfortunate that many of us do I mean we're not like Joe Stiglitz where he turns out we're booking about two weeks or something and and it reads so intelligent as well you know but that's basically what you do I don't think you go back to academic work because there's only one way your academic work can go after that and um, occasionally when I wrote like the last two academic articles it was mainly so having the ideas and talking to uh, maybe some of my former students or collaborators, and they would say, oh, you know, let's write a paper and then collaborate. And I say, yes, and, and we we'll do it. But most of the hard um, estimation or mathematical work is, is, been, is done by my co-authors usually. But I would say, I mean, they always say my contribution is at least half the other things involved in writing a paper.
0: So how have your models and and your work since then um, influenced subsequent research or labor market policies? What came after your papers?
1: Well, I mean, you know, since once you get the the Nobel Prize, or once the profession, your peers think that it's worth that kind of award, it's obviously influential in their mind in the way they do the work. And... um, and there are two, two kinds of applications. One is that um, now when you look at models of unemployment, especially unemployment policy, I mean, they're basically our models that they're using, that those who draw the advice and those who do the research. I mean, you know, there there are active networks, research groups, in search and matching. There is one that has hundreds of members and they meet every year to discuss new work in the area. So it's. So it's it's a very active area of research in labor markets, especially when you're interested in uh, reasons for the breakdown of pure of the pure neoclassical way of analyzing the labor market. And then the other side is that the the approach itself of um, of, uh, assuming that there are what we call frictions, which is like a kind of cost of adjustment that might be involving information imperfections, in mismatches. Um, It's finding applicability in in many other areas of economics and even outside economics, you know, like sociology and human relationships, for example, in housing, you know, when you're looking for a house, it's like looking for a job and the interaction between the buyer and seller. So that's that's pleasing in a way to see that... um, an approach that we came up, uh, I would say independently, actually, but I am, I am more to say myself. We talked about it a lot, uh, talking how did we get the, the ideas? And it was obvious that we were motivated by different things and we got to it uh, independently. And to set up the modeling way of doing it, you know, like intellectually, there is no doubt that the most satisfying Thing for me at that time, on mine, was writing my book, the equilibrium unemployment theory, which came out in the nineteen ninety. Because suddenly I realized that everything fitted in so nicely, you know, it was as if it was there to be picked up and, and put together, and, and to find out that that kind of modeling has so many different applications is 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 some very intellectually very satisfying.
0: What do you think is the unique contribution that was brought by those models that allowed it to have so much um, legwork?
1: Well, it, it's, I think it's the realism. You know, because ultimately, economic, I mean, good, good economic models have to be elegant. If it's something that is difficult to understand, and all that, then it, it would be very difficult to have an influence. Now, this model is very elegant, but then that's a kind of necessary condition. It's not sufficient. It's got to be realistic. It's got to do well when it's tested. It's got to appeal to people because that's how uh, they think. That's, that's how the world works. And something about looking for a job or losing your job, and you know, that is something that we think about all the time. And that model gives you a very good intuition behind all your thought processes you have. And it does come up against the chronometric Uh, Testing as well. For example, if I tell you now in a a couple of years' time, you're going to be out in the labor market, how are you going to go about finding a job? You're probably going to describe very much what's described in a more formal language in my book about uh, looking for work. And then you have to make the decision whether to accept one or not. Then you have to decide whether you're going to stay there longer, are you going to try for a, a promotion there, are you going to look elsewhere? All, all those things fit in. So it's it something that appeals to people to, to use. You know, It's it, it's a little bit uh, ironic in a way because I think that's one of the biggest success of the models. Um, and it does come up with very good um, policy recommendations for uh, reducing the burden of unemployment, for making sure you uh, take better advantage of the resources of so a country of a labor market to generate more jobs. But one of the most ironic matters is that uh, sometimes when people ask me, you know, so what's your contribution? Non-economists completely, you know, family members, for example, say, oh, what's your contribution that's supposed to be you know, so successful and all that? And I describe to them, and they look at me completely puzzled, and they say, oh, I see. Well, isn't that obvious, you know? (laughs) In fact, even (laughs) even Dave Morton's wife was when we... um, we spent, I went to Chicago and we spent um, hours and hours locked up in his office working out the model that eventually came out with the paper that's been quoted as the first paper by the Nobel Committee as the, mo- as, as the one that deserved it, which was published in 1994. And then we went home and <laughs> she said, so what did you do today, darling? <laughs> she said to today to He said, well, you know, we described how when... Um, when you have a company and it has jobs, and then uh, something changes in the market, and uh, and it, it's no longer profitable to keep all the jobs, then you will dismiss some of the workers, and those workers will look for another job. And then, depending on uh, what unemployment support there is, they might get a job quickly or not quickly. And then she looked at us completely puzzled, and she said, "Oh, is that all?" <laughs> and you don't blame them. but then. You have to write it down in some formal equations and show how it goes into our growth models and all that.
0: So if it's intuitive, wherein lies the value? Is it the fact that it just manages to capture these kind of intuitive notions with mathematical elegance? I, I, I think that's
1: a very, very big part of it, yes. Um, in that it doesn't contradict anything we consider to be Sensible, then. But the main thing about it is that once you formulate it in a in an attractive mathematical way, then other people can use it in their work to push it forward into other directions. And the more it's pushed forward, and the more it does, then you look back and say, "Oh, you know, this is a good model. It's a good foundation for whatever we're, we're doing." I mean, think of the great um, ideas in in economics. You know, the supply and demand theory. Well, who have thought that when Marshall was drawing his supply curve and the demand curve, that you have a applicability in about 90% of economics, if not more. Or think of Adam Smith's idea of the division of labor, for example. It, to an industrialist, it would be obvious that if you have division of tasks, then you're going to be more productive than if you ask one person to do everything. And yet, it founded the, the profession. You know, that's... I mean, obviously our ideas are not up to them, but to show you how simple, intuitive ideas, uh, once they're formulated in a neat way, then they can be taken into a new context and used and come up with something that is useful in understanding what we're seeing around us in the economy and in drawing conclusions about how to improve the functioning of those economies.
0: And how did your culture and upbringing influence your choice of work within economics? What made you ask the questions you asked?
1: Well, I think obviously that's a that's a huge influence. And you know, my formative years were the the anti-poverty years of the 1960s. It was when the economists have come out of the war. By then, they were growing well, and it, and it was when um, the, the sort of social conscience, if you like, and Great political leaders like uh, JFK in the United States or over here in Europe generally were saying that um, now a country it should be shameful to have uh, people without jobs and poverty. And you know, in these states they explicitly declare war against poverty. Here we have the labor government. For the first time since the war, where it was looking for uh, anti-poverty uh, measures, Europe, same thing was happening, and and I came into uh, economics at the end of all that, or during all that. So obviously, my mind was addressed to that. And then um, towards the end of my PhD at the LSE in the early seventies, unemployment suddenly started rising, and I was saying, you know, unemployment had been one and a half, two percent. To, for for twenty years, thirty, if not more, why now rises? So I thought that was the big problem. That's that's what I want to understand. That's how I got into it.
0: So to discuss the kind of modern policy work you've um, performed, you chair the committee, committee for the Greek government, which has been tasked with drafting long-term growth strategy for the country. So. Greece has emerged from its third international bailout in 2018 and after a decade-long debt crisis. So what is your work on the committee and what is the context that you're performing in?
1: Well, the, um, I mean, the committee is tasked with drawing up a, um, a development program for Greece. It's a, it's, it's a very big job and potentially very controversial. And I wouldn't have done it, and it's done completely voluntary. You know, it's not that there are any other motives for doing it. And and I wouldn't have done it unless I was convinced that uh, there was some hope that it would be applied by the current administration. And and I was and, and I was convinced after meeting the prime minister, both before the elections and after, and he was explaining to me, and I talked to him, and I saw his background, what he would do. So, so I thought that's a worthwhile public service. I. I Tried to do the same before in Cyprus, but I quickly, quickly quick because I didn't think there was seriousness about reforms uh, when I was doing it. Which was just be, it was during the debt crisis again. I did it for three years. I saw it. No hard feelings. It's not something that I want to spend my time on because I didn't see that it was going to be a result. Of course, in Greece, we we don't know yet, but the prospects so far, even a year later, they're good. Now. Now the other thing, the other reason I was doing it is not only because I'm Greek and I feel for the country, you were, but um, but but I do I, I I do feel sorry for the the country. Its prospects are much better than what you hear outside, uh, and that's because of the of debt. You know, you hear of of the debt. There was some very negative publicity given at the beginning of the crisis or they are lazy or they want to take money from others, you know, like then German administration wasn't very kind to the Greeks, you know, the Schäuble. And then I have to say Greeks didn't help themselves very much with the governments they had at one time and, and, and the way they, they behaved. Um, and, um, but then if you look at the fundamentals of the country, they, I mean, they are very good. It's a country with lots of natural resources. It, it's a beautiful country. It's got um, cultural heritage like no other, with the exception of Italy, maybe. You know, There's no reason why they shouldn't be considered equally. It, it's got a um, highly cultured and educated uh, population. It, it should be doing a lot better than what it is. So I thought, you know, here is something where the raw material is there, as it were, if you know how to kick it into action. And there is someone in charge who's prepared to do it. So just go in and draft your program and um, hope for the best. So there is was, hope.
0: What was the prognosis for Greece pre COVID? And how has COVID changed the kind of long term growth strategy?
1: Well, well, that's the that's the big question that we have to face now, actually, and uh, and the longer it draws out, the more difficult it becomes. Because our our intention, you know, my committee's intention was to draw up a medium to long term program of reform. So we're thinking about um, the government has secured majority for the next five years. So we're thinking of something that would at least take five years to implement, we're thinking about 2030 is the time it will have an impact, if not beyond. And when um, COVID, and and we started our work, I should say, before COVID, we started about a year ago, in fact, it was when the prime minister talked to me for the first time. And when when COVID came, obviously, especially the short-term situation changed dramatically. So in the beginning, we thought, uh, no, you know, we should because it's only a short-term situation. Then the European uh, Commission comes along in April, May, whenever it was, not and, and he put around a very generous fund to support um, uh, recovery from COVID for uh, different countries. There was a lot of money given to Greece compared with his GDP and what he was spending before. And, um, and the prime minister was asked Uh, by a journalist, Uh, what intentions do you have about that? The European Commission needs a plan, what are you going to do? And he said, well, yes, we have the Pissaridis Committee, they're going to give us the uh, Pissaridis report, that's what we give them. And suddenly the Greek press discovered that we were there, whereas before we were working quietly. And everything, I became almost a household name, the Pissaridis Committee, the Pissaridis Committee everywhere, you know. So we had to take uh, COVID into account, but, but our, our approach, sort of after talking to um, my colleagues, of course, who have been extremely influential with in the committee, if not uh, more influential, since they, they have much closer to Greece than what well, I am, so, so living in England. Um, we, we still decided to go for the long term, but um, pay more attention to the uh, short term impact of COVID. On the economy, Uh, especially you know things like tax revenue that might be getting higher rather than lower in the short term. Uh, You know we have detailed reforms about schools, education, investment climate. You know those are more or less the same, but especially in the sequencing of reforms that we're recommending, we're putting a lot more emphasis on. attracting short-term investments that will lead to job creation and um, help Greece come out of COVID faster. Public health, we're putting a lot of attention there How to reform the health system in public health. So it has influenced it
0: like that. So you, you say that at first you saw COVID as this kind of short-run shock. But with the perspective of history, say in 50 years hence, which do you think will be more? Which do you think will be taught first in history battles? Do you think it will be the eurozone bailout, or do you think it will be COVID? Which do you think will have a more pertinent impact on Greece or on on the eurozone more broadly? Um,
1: no, I, I, no, it would be it would be the debt crisis in the way it was dealt in the way that we, or you know, in the eurozone, essentially, everyone adopted this sort of German. Policy of austerity until the economies, the economies adjust to that, rather than COVID. With, with COVID, I still think its biggest impact would be the short term, with some caveats though, in, in that um, I mean there's no doubt that it's going to be some kind of vaccine sooner or later. And, and one scenario that i see in my own mind that it will just be like flu again you know flu each year we have seasonal flu it kills a lot of people it's not reported anymore because it's become part of the daily routine if you like you know in winter hospitals get more patients more people die flu is a main reason for that despite the vaccination which is not 100 percent effective and um, and we live with it. And, and COVID could be one of those. It could be one of the viruses that you get on a seasonal basis and it goes. I, I think that's that's a kind of worst case scenario, as it were, for it. So it's not something that will change the world, devastating. There are, however, some caveats the longer we learn about it. And the first one is whether, um, whether COVID has long-term effects, which we don't know yet. At least flu, we know if we get in a recovery, it doesn't have long-term effects. So if it has long-term effects, uh, you know, if it makes you chronically sick, for example, then it's a lot more serious than anyone who gets it. And, and some evidence is beginning to emerge that there are long-term effects. We don't know yet if they're going to remain or so. That that's that, that is a problem. And the other problem is that um, it's, it's in a way what caused it, you know, like and. And now scientists and um, they're coming up with things like there are a lot of uh, viruses like that in animals that could migrate onto humans and cause different problems. Is it something, is it our lifestyle that is bringing it? Is it something that would be a frequent occurrence? Because if you look back, you know, SARS 20 years ago in China was very localized, it didn't spread, so it wasn't that serious. The, the, the biggest pandemic from the past was 100 years ago, the Spanish flu. If we if we need another 100 years to get the COVID, you know,
0: who knows 100
1: years what would happen?
0: One thing that we've asked everyone in the series is that in 2006, Greg Mankiw, a Harvard professor who worked as the Chair of the Council of Economic Advisors under George Bush, he said, quote, the sad truth is that the macroeconomic research for the past three decades has had only a minor impact on the practical analysis of fiscal and monetary policy. I mean, in your own experiences, how, how true is this?
1: Well, I think it's good news, actually. It means that uh, that someone got it right in <laughs> the previous generation. So why reform it? I think, uh, I mean, you're joking about it. I think. I, I think it is serious in a way. You know, we've, we've learned that... Um, Monetary and fiscal policy in normal circumstances, they they don't contribute that much to the economy. You know, as long as you have monetary stability, the budget that is more or less balanced, maybe, you know, let it go up and down on its own to automatic stabilizers. That's all you want from your monetary fiscal policy. And and what that is telling us is that economic policy, which is still absolutely essential, I think, for a country to run well, it has to be micro-policy. You're know, you targeted onto individual issues. You know, if 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 a country runs at say eight percent, nine percent unemployment in normal times, like Spain, then the way to solve it is not a, a Keynesian uh, fiscal policy. It's not going to do it. You you have to follow micro policies that, that address the particular issues that give eight percent unemployment in that country, when in 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 Britain is four percent. You know, why? It's not because there are more deficits in Britain than there are in Spain. So taking what Mankiw said, uh, yes, you know, we learned that monetary and fiscal policy don't do very much as long as they're evenly balanced on average. And therefore, if you want to deal with the economy, try and find other policies that are addressing particular issues in particular targeted ways.
0: How do you think your own work has impacted the practical analysis of policy in the last three decades?
1: Well, well, well I was saying before as well that I'm, I'm pleased to see that it had an impact on the way we um, do mon- uh, policy towards unemployment. The support, you know, I'm in favor of generous support to the unemployed to keep them franchised within the labor market and avoid uh, poverty because of unemployment. But I'm also in favor of taking measures that ensure that the unemployed person gets back to work quickly. There is a transition. you should regard unemployment as something transitional that it, that it, it, it hits you because either because you are unlucky, which and I do believe in the luck having influence in, in, in life or because what you are working in is no longer viable, it's been taken over by automation, for example, and um, you need to transition to some other kind of job. And that needs government support as well. So it's a combination of generous support to avoid poverty, to keep you motivated, and incentives for training programs to get you back in. And that's basically what the the framework that we developed uh, says that policy should be addressing and now most countries are addressing and policy in that way.
0: So three questions to wrap up. Um, first, what do you do to relax? What do you do to enjoy yourself?
1: Well, depends where I am, I guess. When I'm in um, Cyprus, I love swimming, uh, gardening in good uh, conditions where you actually see color and fragrance coming out of your <laughs> gardens. that Those are hobbies that uh, I wouldn't change. I try and um, replicate them here, except for swimming, though. Um, you know, Once you're swimming the Mediterranean, you wouldn't go anywhere near a swimming pool. <laughs> I can assure you. I replaced it with walking. I'm fortunate to live there, very close to Hampstead Heath, so it's almost a daily walk, observing the seasons and everything um and i generally i mean i do like economics actually i do like uh, reading about economics books other than what i have to do and i watch lots of football as well the tv i like well i i, I mean i like watching a good program on tv which is very hard to find but you do find some but um watch sports especially
0: football is a good pastime have you ever been tempted to go for a swim in the Hamster Teeth Ponds? No, I tried I try the temperature of the water.
1: Even in the heat wave that we have is so cold that I don't think I would ever dare touch any finger. I guess. Fair enough, fair enough. So people swimming actually. Only a couple of days ago, I saw people swimming in the ponds. I, that's
0: just astonishing. Braver people than I am. Um, what what do you think are a, a couple of books, um, fiction or non-fiction, do you think every undergrad in economics should read?
1: Well, let me see. I mean, every I mean every undergrad in economics should be reading books because it's very good to see how other people think, you know, how other people think about problems. Um so when it when it comes to economics, I, I would strongly advise anyone to read um one or two of the classics written by very intelligent, influential people. Yeah, I mean, Keynes' General Theory is my favorite book. I may not be too much in favor of Keynesian economics as I said before, but I mean, reading that book is a pleasure. I read it twice, I think. It's so well written. You, you can see how the mind of someone very, very clever like Keynes works and how he's addressing a problem. And, and I think that's very good. That would be very good for undergraduates to read or read a bit of Adam Smith's. Wealth of Nations. I read sections of that as well when I was a student. Or uh, my, I had a supervisor at the PhD, um, Japanese professor, Michio Morishima, who was saying to me, the most fascinating book he read and so soon he went into economics was uh, Hick's Value and Capital. So I read Hick's Value and Capital as well. And I could see what well, would motivate him. He did that logical way of thinking. That, that helps students think uh, themselves in that logical way. Outside economics, actually, what I find fascinating to read is, is something similar, but not technical, obviously, and more outside is that, if I mean, if it's fiction, you know, beautiful language, the way they approach a problem, um, the whole sort of interactions that take place, you know, for example, I've read books about the lives of mathematicians and how they were influenced I mean, i was always fascinated by the way mathematicians think, you know, all the way from Archimedes to modern times, you know. Um, and then, good literature, you know, something like a book by Ian McEwan, for example. When I read, it completely uh, different, you know, your mind sort of. I mean, other authors like him as well. Or, or history books. I do read a lot of uh, history. The book I read right now is sitting on my shelf for two months because I haven't found. I haven't had time to read was um, uh, a very well-researched book, apparently, reading from the review, about um, how Rome and the Roman Empire failed because they didn't control pandemics in the cities. It's called called The Fate of Rome. I can see it opposite me. It's there waiting for me to finish with these urgent deadlines I have and go and read it. That, That kind of book I recommend very strongly because Opens your mind. It makes you realize that what you are doing is not just this little narrow field of economics that you are interested in, but it's a lot of interesting stuff and interesting thinking outside.
0: And finally, as ever, what gives you hope?
1: <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm,
0: I'm a very optimistic person
1: in life. Whatever I see, I I, I can see the bright side of it, and. way forward i have taken that from my mother used to annoy me in the beginning that she would tell me that everything that happened was good i say it just cannot be and now i have the same it's like i might be watching uh, football and my team scores a goal and i think oh they're going to win the league that goal was so good (laughs) that's it extends that so 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 i do have hope that we're going to solve the big problems uh, of the world i think you asked me earlier you know if i were starting now what would i consider to be the big Biggest problem. I think biggest problem would be inequality. I'm very concerned about inequality as such that there would be human, there would be such huge divisions in the human race. But I'm optimistic that we're going to tackle it sooner or later, just like we tackled so many. And also, you know, optimistic. I thought there would be a vaccine by now, for example, with COVID. But you know, surely medical research, they have medical professors. So generally, whatever I do, I'm very hopeful
0: well perfect professor thank you for your time hey, thank you very much and to you the listener we thank you for listening and we hope you tune in again next time